0: Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm Colin Robertson, CJAI Vice President and Fellow and host of Global Exchange. On today's show, you'll hear a session on democracies and technologies, featuring Kristen Lord, Thorsten Benner, and Chris Walker. This session took place during Human Rights City 2021 conference organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies.
1: Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Kyle Matthews. I'm executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Uh, We're pleased to welcome you to day three of Wright City. Uh, This year's uh, conference is focused on human rights in the digital age, and we're really pleased today to have uh, two really important sessions, uh, one on can democracies unite on tech to fight authoritarian regimes and another one on the use of social media to prosecute people for committing mass atrocity crimes so we we have two really fascinating sessions um just like to thank all of our partners that made this possible on behalf of my colleagues at the montreal institute for genocide and rights studies we're one of the main organizers with the raw wallenberg center for human rights but this year we also have the support of the, the canadian department of national defense through their targeted engagement program we have support of the uh, Center for Research and Education on Human Rights at the University of Ottawa. We have the support of the U.S. Embassy to Canada, as well as, U- as the uh, uh, Embassy of the, of the Kingdom of the Netherlands to Canada, uh, as well as the International Organization Global Action Against Mass Rossi Crimes, and also the Canadian Commission UNESCO. So we have a really kind of interesting group of organizations and diplomatic representations that are, that are sponsoring this event. So with that to do, I'd like to uh, pass the floor to uh, to Colin of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, Colin, the floor is yours. You can uh, introduce the speakers and, and facilitate the discussion. Thank you.
0: Perfect. Well, thanks, Kyle. Well, as Kyle said, I'm Colin Robertson, and I'm Vice President and Fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. And I want to welcome you all to this panel on democracies and technology. And I'm particularly delighted to welcome our panelists, Kristen Lord, Chris Walker, and Thorsten Benner. Chris Walker is Vice President of Studies and Analysis at the National Endowment for Democracy based in Washington. Kristen Lord is President and CEO of IREX, a global development and education organization also based in Washington. Thorsten Benner is co founder and director of the Global Public Policy, an independent nonprofit think tank based in Berlin. Their mission is to improve global governance through research, policy advice, and debate. Chris and Kristen join us from DC and Thorsten is in Berlin. I'm in Ottawa. A bit of context for our audience. At the Munich Security Conference in February, President Joe Biden said, we must shape the rules that will govern the advance of technologies and the norms of behavior in cyberspace, artificial intelligence, biotechnology so that they are used to lift people up, not used to pin them down. This comes amid talks from the Biden administration and others for a Western Tech Democracy Alliance, as more and more Western democracies are waking up to the challenge of authoritarian tech and human rights. Leaders in countries, including Cuba, Iran, North Korea, Russia, and Venezuela, are increasingly using technology for liberal um, ends. As we've seen in the disinformation campaigns against the Hong Kong activists, current in the news today, following the anti-extradition protest in 2019 by China, espionage of Iranian activists, and hiring Twitter's employees to spy on Saudi activists by Saudi Arabia. At the NATO and G7 summits this past week, there was reference to the challenge that technology utilized to interfere in elections or as a channel for disinformation using social media and other vehicles. NATO is going to update its strategic concept, in part because of the challenge of emerging disruptive technologies. So let's get started. Thorsten, I'll start with you as you come from farthest away, although not by CyberWay. Since you're based in Germany, do you have any perspectives on what Germany or other European countries are doing or should be doing to address these big issues? Thorsten.
2: Thank you, Colin, and thank you, Kyle, for the invitation. And it's uh, great to be with uh, Kristin and Chris on on this uh, excellent panel on an important topic. Maybe for starters, I'll, I'll share my personal perspective, which uh, I don't claim is any particular German or European perspective uh, on, on this. I think the discussion on authoritarian tech is ab- absolutely important, but uh, it's also important that we actually keep perspective. Uh, first of all, that uh, we see the proportions. Our democracies, uh, they will not fail because of authoritarian tech. They will fail because uh, actors in our democracy will will use technology for illiberal ends. Uh, what uh, Prime Minister Orban has done in Hungary, building this illiberal state, uh, the way he calls it himself, uh, or what President Trump did in the US, they didn't use authoritarian tech in the sense uh, that this is te- technology that comes from authoritarian countries, but uh, they use technology for liberal ends. Uh, but that's our technology in, in democracy. So I think it's important uh, to keep uh, perspective in 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 this uh, in this whole game. And uh, I just like to make two recommendations in, in terms of how we can move forward. Uh, on the one hand, uh, I think it's important uh, to have a defensive uh, agenda. That means uh, that our companies, we should make sure that they, they don't get uh, become complicit in repression in authoritarian regimes. Uh, you've uh, listed in the introduction a number of uh, examples where Companies from democracies have uh, enabled transnational repression or repression in authoritarian countries. For example, the, the, the companies, uh, Western companies, providing the, the swaps for genetic uh, sampling in, in Xinjiang and, uh, and uh, the, the like. Well, we need to make sure that our companies are not complicit in repression, authoritarian repression. That probably means, uh, especially for kind of social media companies. That uh, it will be very hard for them to be uh, to be in in, in aggressive authoritarian uh, authoritarian systems. And at the same time, I think we need to make sure that those who fled from repression in authoritarian systems and are now in uh, in our our democracies uh, that we protect them from the long arm of uh, authoritarianism and authoritarian tech, be that uh, of President Putin or Erdogan. The Saudi regime, or 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 China, and I think we have a lot of uh, work to do on on that front because all too often activists uh, are are uh, subject to transnational repression uh, by by these uh, by these governments, and we don't do enough to protect them. And at the same time, I think uh, it's important to use technology to uncover uh, uh, repression. Uh, I think we've we've done that quite successfully. Much of the evidence uh, on Xinjiang has ca- kind of uh, come out of uh, the intelligent use of uh, technology. And I think we can also use it uh, as, a, as a support uh, for litigating uh, mass atrocity crimes and, and so on. So I think we can use it positively. So there's there's a big case for kind of democracies coming together against authoritarian tech, but I would like to say that there is at least equally bigger case uh, for democracies to come together for democratic tech, because it shouldn't just be a defensive uh, agenda where we kind of, uh, the, the, the main concern is with fending off authoritarian technology produced uh, by and used by authoritarian uh, countries. But I think we need to make sure that we use technology here in order to kind of support democracy and social justice. What you said in the in the beginning, that quote of President Biden at the Munich Secu- Security Conference, where the technology is used to lift people up, not to pin them down, I think the way that story turns out in our societies, that's mostly and totally in our hands, uh, and I think uh, we should think more on, along the lines of the likes of Ethan Suckerman of MIT. He uh, a few years ago he wrote a, a kind of an optimistic piece, or at least an aspirational piece, six or seven ways that social media can enable enable democracy and uh, think along these lines, because I think we can only kind of be competitive in the competition of systems uh, with authoritarian state capitalism if we ourselves make sure that technology doesn't weaken and undermine democracy at home, but it's uh, that it strengthens uh, democracy. So fortifying this at home and using, you know, technology for And learning to use technology uh, for democratic ends, I think, is an important uh, kind of part of our agenda. Well, thanks, Thorsten. I take your point, and I hadn't
0: thought about that, about asylum policy relating to the use of this as well. It's something that Western governments should think about. Um, And, of course, as you point out, tech used for both good and bad. Well, Kristen, let me move to you and and tell us a bit about IREX. You do a fair bit of work in capacity building leaders and institutions, Can you tell us a bit more about this work and what can be done to bolster the privacy and security of civil society groups that are being threatened
3: Yes, thank you very much, Khan. It's a, a real delight to be here with all of you today. Uh, so to put our work in some kind of context, I think when we're thinking about authoritarian technology and how to respond, as Torsten was talking about, not just defensively, uh, but maybe more proactively, there are a number of places we can think about intervening. One is at the level of domestic or international policy, One is at the level of the tech platforms, but IREX really is working with individuals, individual activists, individual human rights advocates and so on, and also at the level of civil society organizations. And I think that's an area where there are actually huge asymmetries, I'd even say inequities between civil society organizations and their ability to protect themselves, to defend themselves. Um, And and I just wanna make a couple of points about some of the things we've learned through this kind of work. One of them is that you know we really need to think about this work as not just being one-off trainings. Uh, trainings are useful. You can teach people and their organizations how to protect themselves better. But the landscape is changing so quickly, the tools are changing so quickly, that we find it is much more effective to think about this as an ongoing form of support, an ongoing form of partnership. Um, so that's one thing. I think it's especially useful if there are maybe hubs or resources set up who c- that can serve a number of uh, smaller organizations all at once, so that they're sort of constantly available as threats emerge, um, and again, to have that constant vigilance as, as things change. Another point. I want to make is that we see a huge value in networking these organizations with each other. They really rely on each other, uh, not just to share expertise, uh, technical ideas, lessons learned, and so on, uh, but also uh, really to form some sense of solidarity. People who are engaged in these, uh, this kind of work, these kinds of campaigns, are uh, it's a very stressful activity they feel a lot of um, emotional support when they band together and so one thing that i as an individual have learned from our team and doing this work is that one of the most important things that we do to protect civil society organizations and individual activists is to provide psychosocial support Um, if they are able to meet protect their own psychosocial health they are in a much better position to continue with their important work and continue protecting others so there it's that Uh, kind of unexpected human side that we need to not forget when we're focusing on technology and technological threats.
0: And Kristen, that's a very good point, I think, about about groups like this are yours and others working together. To me, that's the great advantage that democracies have over the authoritarians. I recall I was at the sole defense dialogue a couple of years ago prior to the pandemic, and I had dinner with a uh, PLA colonel. And he, after a few drinks, he made the point that. The one thing that the Chinese really did admire the United States for, but also feared was its alliance system and the fact that our civil societies across nations work together. Not the same for authoritarian. So I think that's a very good point you make. Christopher, let me move to you. You testified recently on the threat of uh, sharp power to the integrity of democracies. Could you tell us a bit about what sharp power is in your terms and how democratic systems could safeguard against it?
4: So first of all, Colin, thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be here with you and also with Kristen and Torsten. Um, I think I'd answer the question in the following way with some context. I think if we think about where we are today in the uh, struggle for uh, democracy and global politics, we're 15 years in to a democratic decline. But I would argue that the companion uh, component to that is uh, also a period of time of authoritarian resurgence. And interestingly, if you use the uh, start date of the mid-2000s, which is Freedom House's assessment, it's also when uh, the technological revolution took off. So Twitter, Facebook, and uh, YouTube all came on the scene in earnest at that time. Um, And I think we have to reckon with the impact of the technological revolution. On the one hand, this has offered authoritarian regimes to uh, have the sort of reach that I think few really anticipated, certainly going back 20 or 25 years ago in the lead up to what has now become the uh, period of democratic decline. At the same time, as Torsten alluded to, think democracies have really struggled to build norms around the technologies in ways that are consistent with democratic accountability transparency, and human rights. And that's a very bad combination where you have ambitious authoritarian regimes on the one hand, who after all have a point of view, they have a preference, uh, they do not privilege uh, free association or freedom of expression. On the contrary, one only needs to look at the way in which the, the regime in Beijing treats its own citizens or those in, for example, Hong Kong to get a flavor of their approach to these things. And likewise in Russia, Uh, freedom of expression is repressed uh, fiercely there by the authorities in the country. And so it's not really a surprise that when they reach beyond their borders, they take that um, sensibility with them. And when it comes to that sort of interaction beyond their borders, what my colleagues and I have found, and this is true uh, in a report that we've released today, which has updated some of our research on these issues, is that the in, in many cases, what we find is the um, effects of the engagement from uh, China, its government and its surrogates has the effect of encouraging censorship or otherwise sidelining debate on certain issues or enhancing or baking in surveillance when it comes to the tech side of things. I think the key issue here is for the democracies, uh, it's really up to them in the end for us to develop approaches that can defend essential values we can't expect that for example the authorities in china who face no real pressure uh, domestically to change who have very clear uh visions for how these things should be organized not only in terms of governance domestically but increasingly um, in key rule setting bodies whether it's within the un or elsewhere when it comes to technology standards Uh, They will pursue those interests in the absence of any sort of check on their power, which means it's actually up to the democracies, as we say in the report we released today, uh, to stimulate a race to the top and to make certain that uh, democratic values animate and surround technology, both for our own society's health, but I think also for the larger uh, struggle that's emerged, including in countries that are deciding what path they're going to take. And really do have a choice as to whether it will be uh, more in the direction of more surveillance and censorship baked into the technology or whether it will be a path that privileges and respects privacy, um, openness, transparency, and freedom of expression.
0: Thanks Chris. Do you want to just tell us the title of that report? We'll put it in the the comments side and we'll do a hyperlink to it but if people want to sort of access it while listening. What's it called? And it's on the website.
4: Correct. Um, It's called A Full Spectrum Response to Sharp Power, the Vulnerabilities and Strengths of Open Societies. And this is a follow-on report and an outgrowth of a report that we released in December 2017 uh, on this topic. Okay, thank you. Thorsten. let me move to you again. How should, uh,
0: Chris has talked about sharp power, how should the democratic governments respond to these sort of attacks by authoritarian regimes, including individually, although as I think Chris makes, we'd be far better if we could act collectively. Hurston?
2: I think we need to, I mean, that's where this uh, democracy, uh, alliance of democracies, uh, I think, really comes in. I do think in order to deter uh, the kind of censorship uh, demands, I think we need solidarity and, and collective Actions, including uh, the use, for example, of hostage hostage taking by Beijing. Uh, remember, my think tank uh, colleague, Canadian diplomat Michael Kovrig, uh, who has been lingering in a Chinese prison for over two years to put pressure on the on the Canadian government. Uh, I think we we, we re- need collective uh, collective security mechanisms and real solidarity. To, to stand together against uh, these kind of trash, transnational forms of uh, of repression, you mentioned kind of attacks on on democracy. I think, uh, as as I as I said before, a lot of the fight for our democracy will be will be won by kind of uh, you know working within within our own public, uh, and that's the the key front. But the kind of external front and uh, dealing with. Uh, nefarious uh, interference i think it's an important uh, concern i think uh, the the most important point is to make sure that uh, we fortify the core institutions uh, of our democracies uh, in in the in the elector- electoral system against uh, interference that we educate uh, our publics uh, and don't get surprised uh, if uh, if it if it uh, happens i think that's uh, a big uh, a big part uh, of uh, the answer and uh, we kind of need to make what's being done in election campaigns in terms of digital advertising and so on a lot more transparent uh, mandatorily and uh, i think we still haven't you know we are moving into a german election season uh, where we have for every political party and political actor there's so many requirements for every dime that you spend that you uh, you kind of uh, have proof to it to the authorities, but uh, there's very little accountability schemes uh, or like uh, due diligence on on the kind of data you use and the way you do political advertising and uh, I think that uh, would be equally important. I think Chris made uh, let let me let me respond to one important point that Chris makes. Uh, I think. Uh, uh, there or his sharp power concept uh, is an important contribution to the debate, but it shouldn't uh, detract uh, from the fact that uh, a lot of uh, what authoritarian players are doing is not uh, is not through the backdoor ne- necessarily, and uh, it's uh, it's using very very simple tools of just buying enablers in our societies within our professional elites within our media elites with our within our public relations uh, lobbying elites uh, within within uh, our kind of other professional legal legal elites uh, to advance uh, the, their kind of authoritarian ag- agenda uh, using these enablers so i think what what i i think is absolutely critical is that we need uh, mandatory transparency requirements for any business uh, relationship uh, with authoritarian uh, players that uh, lobbyists pr firms uh, academics uh, think tanks uh, and and the like have uh, i think we need to, the, we need to use the power of transparency that's a cornerstone of uh, our democracy in in response response to the authoritarian kind of interference efforts. We shouldn't become authoritarian ourselves, but uh, we should use the power of uh, transparency in our own systems and scandalize uh, the selling out of those enablers. And I think that's a key part of the answer from my vantage point.
0: No, thanks. I certainly agree with you on the transparency side. And I also thank you for raising the plight of Michael Kovrig, former colleague in the Foreign Service, who's approaching a thousand days now In sort of Chinese jail, and it's uh, something that, uh, as you point out, the the Western world has to keep its focus on this kind of abuses of human rights. Otherwise, these poor people are going to be just forgotten. Uh, Kristen, let me turn to you. Uh, President Biden has talked about the democracies coming together. The idea of a tech democratic alliance. What would it look like, and how would you kind of get it together? Would would, would you see President Biden convening a kind of summit like he did recently around climate? How is this going to, because I do think this is important, how is it going to come together? And I guess you've been giving some thinking to it.
3: Well, I think, uh, Colin, that President Biden is already intending to pull together a democracy summit. It's something he talked about early in this campaign. And I know the White House is working actively to put that together. And there are a lot of elements of that. I think they're looking at the technology thread that's being discussed in this panel. Uh, I think they're thinking about how to weave together the domestic focus and the international focus. Um, and, and I hope and I, and I understand there'll also be some focus to the level of individual citizens and the issue of disinformation, which I'm gonna talk about a bit because I know we were discussing it uh, right before the session started. And on that issue of disinformation, which I think is such a a toxic, uh, corrosive factor in democracies right now, I I do think that that's something I would love to see President Biden, the other leaders in our uh, democratic allies take very seriously. And that has to be in a number of fronts. It needs to be at the level of policy. We do need to to think about how we can weed out as much as we can using technological solutions and in partnership with tech platforms. Uh, But also, as we were discussing earlier, I strongly believe we need to look at the level of individual citizens and making sure that they are more resilient to disinformation when the cost of producing disinformation is basically zero and we live in democratic societies, things will always get through the net. And so I think we need to look to our democratic allies, we in the United States, to countries like Sweden, like Ukraine, uh, that have been much more effective at building this type of resilience in their citizens, in integrating media literacy into school curricula. Finland is another great example. I think we need to learn that lesson. uh, And we need to work to to integrate that much more systematically, again, through school systems, but also reaching older populations through libraries and other means. If we want to have an alliance of democracies. I think we have to hit all these fronts at once.
0: No, I think that's right about both media literacy as well as education in the schools. I recently worked on a disinformation study and that was certainly one thing that came clear to us that the the, the key role of, as you put it, literacy, but also education. So uh, I think that that is something would have to happen in this kind of idea of an alliance. Christopher, let me turn to you because there would be disparate interests in such an alliance. Uh, how realistic is it, and how do you how how do you uh, guarantee that uh, members go beyond just the declarations and actually implement the kind of
4: programs that Kristen just talked about? So thanks for that question, Colin. Um, I'm going to amplify a couple of things that Kristen just alluded to. I think the the the, the speed and complexity with which the modern technological um, Uh, resources have hit all of us really presents an extraordinary burden for any single citizen to shoulder. And for those reasons, both at the governmental level, but I would contend at the civil society level, there really are enormous opportunities and responsibilities to help ordinary citizens uh, navigate this new terrain, whether we're talking about day-to-day usages of information, not sharing uh, inadvertently uh, disinformation and the like, or understanding the larger policy issues, which frankly are so complicated, it it just makes my head spin. And I think to the extent we can devise ways for civil society to play a more meaningful role, to serve as a translator and an educator, it's very important. To your question, um, I think part of this is, is really an opportunity given the fact that the tech challenge is hitting so many disparate democracies. There's, there's no single democracy that I'm aware of that's escaped any of the challenges that have emerged. Some may be uh, dealing with them a little bit better than others, but the fact of the matter is we're all struggling to figure out ways to um, make the information landscape, the technological landscape, more uh, user-friendly uh, in a in a democracy context. And I think in that regard, uh, there, there really are important opportunities to share information across countries and regions, to use civil society in that regard, to um, help uh, accelerate learning, say in certain places where a country or a sector in a country may be more advanced with those that are a little bit behind. Uh, Kristen alluded to some of the countries that have really been ahead of the curve in part because they've been stimulated by Russian disinformation Uh, Places like Ukraine and the Baltic states have been on the front lines of these things for ages and are very adept at developing responses. I think we need to do more to find ways to uh, make sure that democracies of all stripes are working together, collaborating to accelerate learning and get better outcomes. Chris, how do we do that? Do we do that, like, does this become like
0: a a standing item at a G7 summit or if we create a kind of tech alliance. Would you see that? Because I think collectively there has to be some effort. Or do you do it within NATO? The European Union has, I think, pretty good. They do some good work on disinformation. The country that really has impressed me with what they've done, aside
4: from the Baltic states, is Taiwan. So I, I would approach this by rather than thinking about the precise modality at the outset to think about what the key overarching objectives would be. And I think this is particularly important in this domain because the tech challenges are changing so rapidly, you need some sort of um, um, resource or mechanism that's capable of, of adapting quickly to meet the new challenges. And so I, I wouldn't plant the flag on any single governmental entity per se, or even a single NGO entity per se. But I do think if we, if we believe that Um, this needs to happen, and that there needs to be a flexible uh, mechanism that would allow democracies to meaningfully engage and respond to these issues, then you could, I I would think, find a way to do this that includes both um, the non-governmental and the governmental sector at some level. But I would be reluctant to say it needs to be some precise uh, governmental mechanism, which might be important, but in this context, insufficient. Okay.
0: Okay. Kristen, let me come back to you then, because I know IREX has done work to increase capacity of of civilians and sort of ordinary people to be more resilient to disinformation campaigns. Do you want to speak a little bit more about the examples? Now, you've used European examples, but is there good work being done in the United States or in the Americas?
3: Uh, The the short answer is yes, but it's not nearly enough, Um, so let me back up just a second. We know that media literacy, you can call it digital literacy, cyber citizenship, media literacy, you can call it different things, but we actually know that it works. I believe one of your colleagues pasted in the chat an article I published recently with a colleague, and we tried to link to a lot of the research out there. And it's not just about teaching people how to check facts, or even as Chris rightly pointed out, just read things before you forward them, uh, because a shocking percentage of people forward uh, messages and articles on social media without clicking on the links. Uh, But it's also about recognizing emotional manipulation, because this is where how a lot of misinformation and disinformation gets spread. It's playing to aspects of people's identity, playing to people's fear, and we have good research that shows if you teach people to recognize that and not to share in a knee-jerk sort of fashion, that it does change their behavior. Um, And you can see on our IRX website, we have some research showing that even a year and a half after a fairly minimal level of training, we still see a significantly significant uh, change of behavior where people no longer forward such information to such a degree. So that's the first thing. We absolutely know that this works. you can do it by giving individuals the skills, but ideally you would have a more systemic response. And so Ukraine is an example where IREX is really proud to work in partnership uh, with the the government of the UK and also with the US embassy in Ukraine to provide some support to the foreign uh, ministry of, uh, I'm sorry, the Ministry of Education Ukraine. And what Ukraine has done is basically integrate media literacy across its curriculum. It's not a separate subject, it's not an add-on, they just work into science social studies history and so on um, it's very very effective and i gave other examples that's not the only way to do media literacy Uh, we have examples working in the united states through through libraries Uh, irex works in indonesia in jordan and many other countries Uh, there are a number of other ngos who also do this work the problem is that frankly the scale is just way out of whack with the scale of the problem Uh, this is much talked about this intervention. In fact, a new RAND study came out along with a a Carnegie study saying that media literacy is one of the most frequently mentioned interventions to deal with disinformation. But in terms of coordinated action, in terms of resources, it's really Minuscule. Uh, so I'll make one more point because I could elaborate at length here. But uh, to answer the question you posted to Chris about how would we coordinate, sure, of course we would want to put this issue on meetings at uh, the G7, uh, for instance, uh, regular meetings and bilateral fora, uh, but. I think we also need leadership from government domestically, and also we need uh, support and coordination for civil society to play a role. Maybe the National Endowment for Democracy, since Chris is on the call, can take this on in the US, but there there are many others that could as well. We don't have good clearinghouses for uh, resources that teach media literacy to different audiences. We don't have great research on what works the best. We, I mean, there's so much that could be done to network these different groups together and just to provide better quality information to those who want to take this on. It's not very expensive. We know it works. And I think it's time we just had some leadership, some investment, and some coordination
0: Uh, Coordination, I think, is the the key word, particularly that's where I think the democracies have an advantage because they we've got all these existing institutions to actually coordinate. Um, Thorsten, can democratic governments use existing rules? We've talked about what should be, but do we not have existing rules that we can apply to in terms of corporate responsibility
2: and due diligence
0: to ensure that technology is not weaponized?
2: I, I, I do think uh, you know we should uh, we should use our human rights standards uh, that uh, we have as part of uh, domestic and international law uh, in, in in order to demand that companies uh, comply with that. In Germany, we just uh, passed the so-called supply chain law uh, that. Uh, Mandates uh, due diligence requirements for all German companies in terms of making sure that no human rights are being violated all the way through the supply chain. I'm a I'm a big fan of the, the the way you do it in 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 practice and and so on. I think there's discussions on how to do it most uh, effectively, but I'm generally very much a fan of clear rules and uh, transparency standards, and I'm not a fan at all. Of this uh, wooly corporate social responsibility approach, we need clear rules and and, and standards, and uh, that's uh, that's one way to approach this. Uh, let me just add one one thought on the kind of ally- alliance alliance uh, for uh, summit for democracy that uh, we just talked about. Uh, I have two things. Uh, on the one hand, I think we need to make sure at a leader's level and government level that uh, there's a collective security mechanism against political and economic uh, coercion uh, by authoritarian players, uh, and that democracies come... uh, and and that uh, states at the receiving end of this come together and and, and so on. The summit for democracy, though, I don't necessarily... the the Biden idea, I don't think it would be very strong at a leader's level. Uh, Just imagine all the debates should... uh, the Indian Prime, prime Minister be uh, be invited or or not? All these uh, all these uh, countries that are somehow on the on the fence uh, right now, we'll have endless debates on who is a democracy or not. I think we should use this summit for democracy not to just have a stale old uh, format of uh, leaders meeting, but uh, as a summit for, as Chris said, mutual learning and to amplify. Pro democracy voices from all different uh, parts of our societies, uh, be them be them also from academia, who stand up for academic uh, freedom against uh, against authoritarian uh, repression threats uh, from from the media and from other parts uh, of of civil society, and I think uh, that would be send a powerful signal and uh, a much stronger signal than just having a, a leaders summit which takes me to
0: civil society and their role. Christopher, let me ask you about this because I know the National Endowment for Monocrity, is an awful lot of work with civil societies as a kind of healthy, vital pillar to democracy. How can they contribute if we're going to create this kind of a global alliance? Is that where it has to, does it really have to come from civil society to government?
4: I think it's a terribly important uh, component in essence, because civil society in open societies are the sorts of groups and people and institutions that are swinging away on a daily basis to try to get um, officialdom to do the right thing, to try to get the corporate sector to um, upgrade their own approach to these things in ways that are more transparent and accountable and consistent with democratic practice. And we have a lot of work to do in that space. I think as you move across the spectrum into countries that may not have as much space. Uh, civil society is under great duress in these places. Um, paradoxically, in part because they may be uh, surveilled more in the way that Torsten alluded to at the outset, uh, both within those countries and increasingly beyond their borders. Ron Diebert and his colleagues at Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto have done brilliant work on this and really have been at the forefront of the effort to understand these things. So I think. Um, if we're going to succeed over time, it's hard to imagine a civil society not playing a meaningful role, both in the context of helping to shape the rules that are being discussed at the supranational level, for example, but also at the national level uh, in a governmental context. And then coming back to a point I made earlier, and which I think Kristen has uh, made very eloquently, it's hard to imagine. That uh, citizens in democratic societies can get their bearings in the absence of meaningful civil society uh, education efforts and other efforts to help people understand these very complex issues that are emerging in the tech sphere. So I I can't stress enough the role of civil society uh, to help us be successful in this challenge. Chris, now you do most of your work abroad and good work abroad.
0: But one of the things that struck me listening to Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan over the years is that they say that you know, democracies have first got to get their act together at home and then help fellow democracies. And then the next step would be emerging democracies or those where democracies are in trouble. Um, so if you start at home, that means the United States. I know that's sort of beyond your remit, but do you see that's where, where it, it also has to start? Because certainly the last few years have have demonstrated that even established democracies are at risk of disinformation and uh, misuse of tech.
4: And even established democracies are uh, vulnerable to problems well beyond the two you just alluded to in waves we've seen in recent years. Uh, The points that we stressed in the report we released today, um, and I just mentioned two of them that are directly relevant to your question, Colin. One is uh, democracies and autocracies are tethered in ways that uh, many of us didn't anticipate. And often that interaction redounds poorly in the democratic context. And it doesn't mean that uh, this is solely the impact of the autocracies, as I think uh, Torsten rightly um, made the point at the outset of this discussion, but it does mean the interactions uh, that are so comprehensive now have to be thought about differently uh, given the interconnections that are there. And then critically, in my view, I think while it's true that democracies, including the United States, need to get their own house in order, they can't do so by ignoring the world around them, because um, the problems that emanate from beyond their borders, on the one hand, are not going to stop. There's no pause button that's going to be hit. These problems have to be addressed simultaneously with the domestic problems. And beyond that, furthermore... Uh, To the extent we are going to learn from partners, say, in different parts of Europe or in Africa or in Latin America or Asia, as we upgrade and accelerate our own capacities, uh, that's not going to happen by closing the door and just um, figuring out how to fix things at home. I think we're past that point. So I would really stress this notion of learning in partnership. And I think it feeds back into earlier parts of this discussion as to how these wider ranged efforts to meet these emerging challenges can be an outgrowth of new forms of collaboration and cooperation across borders. Kristen we've we talked sort from of a general sense we do you,
0: you've worked with countries abroad could you pick one or two and just say this there are here's what this country's doing which is actually getting it right and and why they're getting it right and and what contributed to the success could you give us an example from something you've observed in, in, in either written about or through the direct work of IREX?
3: Sure. Thank you very much. I, you know, I, I want to give credit where credit is due. I think a lot of countries like Finland, like Ukraine that I've mentioned, have been working either in Finland's case for a long time or in Ukraine's case more recently to try and take the issue of disinformation seriously. Um, I do think that... We're facing a time where we need to do more, and we need to constantly be adapting. So I don't want to, I don't want to let any dem- democracy, even the most uh, sophisticated among us, are completely off the hook and say mission accomplished. Don't need to worry about this anymore. Um, but I think we can see the the examples of what could be built into a more concerted approach that could be built into a more society wide approach and again i already alluded to what ukraine is doing where uh, they are really just integrating these skills into the curriculum Uh, but i do want to say that where i see Some shortfalls is looking beyond the schools because young people don't vote as much as older people. Young people are only a small percentage of the population. Young people, not just in the United States, but in other uh, countries, are less likely to forward disinformation than their older counterparts. And so, this is where I think democracies could compare notes, come up with some common strategies. We need data, we need research, we need to know what works. And I'd like to see a lot more collaboration. So, while I'm happy to give credit where credit is due. I don't think anybody has cracked the code just yet. Oh, I do want to shout out the, the United Kingdom. I think the UK has developed some countrywide strategies. I think they have yet to implement them fully, but I think they have taken a very serious look at what it would take to do that. So I think we see glimmers of what success would look like, but I can't say anybody's completely won the war against disinformation.
0: Thurston, when you look with across Europe and the European Union, my impression is that they have been doing work on this collectively. Uh, is is that? But, but give us a sense. Is there uh, what's going on in 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 broader Europe? We've talked about some specific countries, but are they is this also being looked at kind of collectively within the European Union? Because that perhaps then could be drawn forward within the wider group of democracies.
2: I I do think uh, there are some efforts in in Brussels, uh, in the European External Action Service. uh, There's a little cell that works on on disinformation. I think uh, they're really committed and they're doing good work, but they have very limited limited resources. So we do rely on some of the countries at the forefront uh, of uh, fighting, for example, Russian disinformation. In the Baltics to hear their lesson and uh, to to share these lessons Europe wide, I think uh, it's also when when you talk about disinformation, this, this of of course how to how to then fight it and uh, how much you know uh, what kind of laws and rules you you use is also subject uh, to contestation within the European Union. What President Macron, for example. Wants to and, and and so on. Maybe I would personally not uh, sign off uh, on that uh, because I value freedom of expression too much, uh, and uh, we shouldn't err on the on on the side of uh, suppressing a speech uh, too much. So I think there is a vital and healthy debate also in terms of uh, the the rules and uh, laws that we should uh, pass, uh, and uh, we can learn from not just European countries, but uh, take, for example, on disinformation, also take the example of uh, Taiwan, which has been battling with uh, disinformation in, in its own democratic process and uh, from which we could uh, learn. All
0: right, we're at the 45-minute mark. Uh, Kyle, have we got some questions that we can direct to our panel?
1: Uh, yes, we do. Let me pull them up. There's, um, th- I think this one is going to be quite interesting um it's from twitter it says how important is it for democracies to ban huawei from their 5g network and what okay. is it from europe certainly
0: it's certainly relevant to canada you know within the the five eyes most of them have but not us <laughs> why don't i start with uh, uh chris and then Kristen in terms of the, this whole debate about huawei use of chinese tech uh firms to provide the the the, the kind of a uh, framework and skeleton for our 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 next level of communications
4: platforms chris well I think this is central to the overarching debate in the sense that uh, if we don't have confidence about the integrity of these systems that will ultimately serve as a as a backbone or a big part of the backbone of our communications and technical um, interaction and in open societies then we have to be very, Cautious about how we adopt them, and I think what we've discovered, whether it's in the case of Huawei or other such systems coming from uh, the People's Republic of China, in places like Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, wider parts of the Americas, is that there are um, extraordinary vulnerabilities there. And I think the answer to this, again, is is for the democracies to have an alternative and high standards that encourage and privilege. Privacy, uh, transparency, and freedom of expression, and don't bake in or otherwise um, privilege the sorts of things that will undermine uh, democratic values and democratic accountability.
0: Kristen, where do you come out on the 5G question? You know, the United States isn't going to be using it. And as I mentioned, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, and Australia, Canada is still making up its mind. What advice would you give a Canadian government?
3: Well, I mean, I think governments, the United States, other democracies have good reasons for not wanting insecure technologies to be used in their systems. Uh, That's common sense. It's reasonable uh, for governments to to, uh, take steps to prevent that from happening. I just want to perhaps uh, against expectations issue a word of caution. I do think we need to be very clear about what the standards are and why certain individual firms fall within or without those standards. No country will be hurt more than the United States and, and uh, certainly other European and uh, countries will be hurt. The Canadian government will be hurt if uh, suddenly there's some sort of blanket trade war or, or banning of uh, international technology companies. You know, I think we have to be careful about setting off cycles of recrimination where uh, Western company, technology companies can no longer export to uh, authoritarian countries, and and vice versa. I, I think we, when our companies do work in uh, other countries, they may not do exactly. They may uh, succumb to to local laws as they have to. But I think the the values baked in are are different than they would uh, if they were uh, local companies, Chinese, Russian, and so on. And so I do think. We, we need to be clear about the standards, we need to protect our interests, but I think we also have to be careful we don't set off a chain of events that we actually don't really want to follow through on because that would be against our interests. It's in our interest to have Western companies uh, that are playing in these spaces uh, continue to be able to export.
0: But part of that, of course, is you have to have the Western companies and certainly Huawei in certain areas, there's not really Western companies that are competitively able to compete. Um, uh, Thorsten, I know Europe has taken a sort of different view that there's a variety of, you seem to be open to you know the question that, uh, that Kyle put about Huawei. Um, Huawei is being used in parts of Europe, but other parts not. W- where do you come down on that Huawei debate?
2: Well, I've been quite active in, in that debate, and I do think uh, democracies need to exclude high-risk providers such as uh, Huawei and uh, ZTE from their kind of critical technology and communications infrastructure. But that's not because uh, we should be afraid of necessarily of surveillance by the Chinese government because we uh, use Huawei. There's some uh, there's some risks on that front, but that's not the major Factor, But uh, the major fear, I think, is just the fear, the the sheer dependence on, on technology in, in, in critical infrastructure areas. You don't want to be uh, dependent on technology of uh, strategic uh, rivals. That's also what mo- motivates the Chinese government not to be dependent on, on foreign and especially U.S. technology anymore. So that's uh, something that could be based on... Reciprocity and their sabotage uh, risks, of course, uh, in in case of a, of a conflict. So we're well advised to exclude uh, high-risk vendors, Huawei and ZTE, from our critical infrastructure. And uh, I think uh, we also well advised not to fall for the disinformation campaign by some Huawei acolytes among our major Western telcos, such as Deutsche Telekom that we actually need Huawei technology because there are no no alternatives uh, in the in the western world that's simply not true Nokia Ericsson and now also increasingly Samsung plus some american companies are coming in and plus some uh, european small and medium sized very innovative players we have all the technology uh, that uh, that we need for rolling out uh, secure and uh, a secure and top-notch uh, 5G networks uh, within Europe, so we really don't depend on on Chinese technology. And the argument that you made, Christine, I think is a quite a slippery slope because uh, what Chancellor Chancellor Merkel's push for an open door for Huawei has been mostly motivated by the fear of retribution against uh, German companies uh, on the on the Chinese market, and uh, I think. When it comes to critical infrastructure, we cannot be afraid of uh, of retribution because otherwise uh, we're foregoing our, our 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 sovereignty and uh, key aspects of uh, our technological sovereignty, and uh, we need to we need to defend that. Uh, and uh, it's of course important uh, to to do that with clear standards. But I think the uh, the standards of not depending on companies that are beholden to authoritarian governments, uh, such as uh, Huawei and ZTE, that's a pretty clear standard. And we can also invite reciprocity. I think it's also ridiculous for Nokia and Ericsson to still expect uh, to be part of the Chinese market. I think we should simply uh, accept that uh, that, uh, the Chinese government uh, mostly reserves its own market uh, to Chinese providers, and uh, we can rely on, on our technologies. And so there's perfect reciprocity in this uh, critical infrastructure area.
0: So Thorsten, would this also involve, you know, if we are going to, uh, in a sense, try and provide an alternative, that's probably going to mean more research and development and investment by governments in some of these big companies. We've done this before on, on major projects. W- would you see that as, as a piece of this If we if we don't have... As, as Kristen says, we're not sure we've got it. Do we then try and create it?
2: I think we should should uh, provide smart incentives uh, for for technology companies uh, to be competitive uh, and uh, support our our players. Uh, Smart industrial policy. I think Germany has become a little more French on on that front. We've done it uh, now with uh, with b- batteries, for example, where we 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 weren't there. We we need to do it on on chips. Uh, I think on on telecommunications infrastructure, we uh, and companies on Nokia, Ericsson, and we need to support the the very innovative upstarts we have in Europe and give them chances to roll out and demonstrate their capabilities. And we also need to be aware, uh, I think, the competition. And I think there you, you, you also see that uh, there's uh, competition within democracies and it needs to be healthy competitions. And we shouldn't be naive because uh, the U.S. government, uh, under the banner of open Run. Tries to uh, make up f- for the lost ground in past decades, where American companies uh, fell behind uh, in the global telecoms market, uh, to make sure that now American companies dominate the Western market uh, in, in in 5G and uh, in the future in, in 6G. And uh, the US is not very is not uh, not e- exactly uh, e- exactly cautious about this. Uh, they actually put their money. Where their mouth is, and uh, I think they want to. They they want to make sure that Nokia and Ericsson play less of a role. And I think, from a European perspective, we need to make sure that our European companies uh, are competitive uh, in an unfair competition with both uh, uh, with both uh, Chinese state-backed companies, uh, but also be mindful of uh, the efforts uh, in the in the U.S. Uh, that uh, that uh, take also some dubious forms. Okay, thank you. Kyle, do we have another
1: question? Um, yes, we do. We have uh, we have two questions that are similar. We only have three minutes left, so I'm gonna read both. And hopefully um, each of the three folks can give, like 20 second comment on them. But so the first question says, um, it's from Twitter, authoritarian states manipulate Western tech platforms. What can be done to prevent this? The second one um, says, Uh, This one's from YouTube. Should reciprocity be applied by Western democracies in that authoritarian leaders and government officials don't allow social media platforms in their societies but are allowed to use just to use them in the West to spread disinformation? Should we ban them from these platforms?
0: Okay now in in 20 seconds or less let me start with you Chris. So it's
4: a it's a pretty complicated question to have 20 seconds on but I, I think it speaks to the conundrum that has arisen in the modern era which is uh, everyone can move across borders and these areas of expression pretty seamlessly. I would be reluctant to lowering the boom entirely on these things. I think it's up to democracies to build out the rules that safeguard their information space without uh, becoming the authoritarians themselves. Good answer. I'll move to you, Thorston. I align with Chris. Okay, good. To Kristen?
3: I, too, aligned with Chris. I think it's very well put, and in fighting authoritarian impulses, we don't want to become the very thing we're trying to prevent.
0: Good response. All right, my final question to you all, and I'm going to start with you, Kristen. Uh, What are you reading or streaming these days?
3: I just finished reading Michael Lewis's The Premonition about uh, people who predicted the pandemic, all the obstacles they uh, found uh, along the way, and how even how in free societies, small groups of people can band together to push change. Uh, It's both frightening and there's a little bit of heartening aspect to it as well.
0: All right. Well, anything by Michael Lewis is always worth reading. Thorsten, what are you reading?
2: I'm reading, not streaming The Crown, but uh, I'm reading a novel by a Georgian-German author called Nino Haratishvili, called The Eighth Life for Grilka, and it tracks uh, the tragic, uh, in a very moving way, it uh, it tracks the tragic lives of one Georgian family uh, across the long 20th century and its trials and tribulations, and it's beautifully written, as I said, very tragic and, and moving, and I can... Very much recommend uh, this
4: book. All right. For the summertime reading, but also the crown is diversion. Chris, what are you reading or streaming? So it's apropos of our discussion, uh, really um, just enjoyed rereading Ron Debert's book Reset, uh, where he both dissects the challenges that have emerged in the digital domain in a very uh, thoughtful but uh, candid way. And then to his great credit offers um, some recommendations on how we can address these things.
0: All right, The Reset, Ron Deibert, Canadian. My wife told me I've got to read it, and now with your recommendation, Chris, I will as well. Well, thank you, Christopher, Thorsten, and Kristen. Thanks for listening to this episode. Remember, you can find the podcast on iTunes or wherever else podcasts are found. If you like the show, please remember to give us a rating. It really helps the podcast grow. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI, and thanks go out to our producer, Charlotte duval antoine and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on The Global Exchange.